Hi, I'm Lewis and welcome to Searching for It. I've listened to quite a few interviews, podcasts with philosophers, and frequently the interviewer will begin by asking something like, what is philosophy to you? And it's actually a great question because I don't think I've ever heard the same answer twice. There are a load of things that are obviously part of philosophy. Debating ethics is philosophy, asking whether or not God exists is philosophy, reflecting upon what it means to be conscious is philosophy. These are all things that are part of philosophy, but it can trip you up if you're asked to define what is philosophy. Having said that, I must have heard that question a hundred times, enough times that by this stage I think I have a pretty good answer that, for me, sums up the essence of what philosophy is really about. So if you take any subject, they're all about some specific class of things, you know, psychology is about the human mind, religious studies is all about religion, and in art you'll be looking at paintings, sculptures, maybe art installations. But philosophy is not about any specific kind of thing. Philosophy is all about questioning the assumptions that lie at the foundations of every one of these other subjects. Take the philosophy of mind. Whereas psychology asks questions about the human mind, the philosophy of mind asks what it even means to be conscious in the first place. And take the philosophy of art. In art class you might discuss, I don't know, the message that's being expressed by a piece of art, but in the philosophy of art you'll ask what it means for a piece of art to convey a message in the first place. And you can have philosophy about more or less anything. I've seen university courses on the philosophy of sex, the philosophy of film, I've even seen a talk on the philosophy of football. And moving on to the theme of today's episode, there are a handful of philosophers who actually specialise full-time in the philosophy of time travel. Now I do want to generally focus on the philosophy of time travel rather than the science of time travel in this episode, because once you get too far into the scientific technicalities, the level of discussion flies way above the heads of probably 99% of people, including myself. It's way above my pay grade. But also because I think the philosophical issues brought up by time travel are really interesting by themselves. And like with any area of philosophy, really, one of the big challenges for philosophers of time travel is to come up with a working definition of what we actually mean by time travel. Because when you really think about it, it's kind of tricky to do. I mean, we can't give the obvious answer, well, time travel is just travelling to a different point in time, because isn't that something that we do every day anyway? You're at a different point in time now than when you clicked play on this episode, you're now a few minutes into the future. But you wouldn't want to say that you've time travelled. If you're coming up with a working definition of time travel, there are a few things that you'll want to make sure are covered by the definition, and a few things that definitely aren't time travel. So presumably you'd want to say that when you go to sleep and you wake up the next day, that's not time travel. And equally, if you take an international flight to a country with a time zone a few hours behind, again, you'd probably want to say that's not time travel either. I think the best definition of time travel, certainly the most popular, was given by a philosopher called David Lewis. As much as it confuses me to do so, I'll call him Lewis for the rest of this episode. Well, he says that time travel, in his words, quote, involves a discrepancy between time and time. Like any part of philosophy, there's a bit of unpacking to do here. So, on the face of it, it might sound like he's not making much sense, but what's at the root of this definition is that there are actually two different senses of the word time. We can use it in two different ways. 
On the one hand, you have personal time, which is how time passes for you. And on the other hand, you have external time, which is how time passes for everyone else. And there is a difference between the two. I think one good way of thinking about it is, if you imagine that everyone's wearing a wristwatch, then personal time refers to how time would pass on your own watch, whereas external time refers to how time is passing on everyone else's watch. So according to Lewis, time travel is when there's a discrepancy between personal time and external time. It's when your wristwatch moves at a different rate than everyone else's, when a day has passed for you but a year has passed for everyone else. And this definition seems to get it right in most of the examples that we've looked at. You know, if you get in a time machine and travel a hundred years into the future, then only a few seconds will have passed on your own watch as your time machine boots up and goes whirling through space and time. You know, you've only experienced a few seconds. But the rest of the world has seen a hundred years go by. So there's a discrepancy here between personal time and external time. Whereas, you know, when you go to sleep and wake up the next day, there's no discrepancy between the speed at which time moves for yourself and the speed at which time moves for everyone else. There's no time travel going on here. And equally, the definition wouldn't cover things like international flight. Even if you move backwards a few time zones, your personal time is still moving at the same rate as everyone else's. You're still experiencing the same duration of time that everyone else has. So, if we're working with Lewis's definition of time travel, well, is this kind of thing possible? Well, certainly, if we're looking at time travel into the future, there are some very good arguments as to why this would be possible. And in fact, surprisingly, running with Lewis's definition of time travel, time travel into the future is definitely possible, and all of us have actually done so, even if just by a very tiny amount. Now, I'll come on to explain why forwards time travel definitely is possible in just a moment. But first of all, I think it's best to begin by thinking about what we really mean by the very concept of time in the first place. I think there's definitely this tendency to think about time as being something constant, something fixed, something that always ticks away at the same rate. You know, you never look up at the clock and see it suddenly speed up or slow down. There's a regularity, a constancy to time. This is certainly how we perceive time. But if you step outside of your everyday experiences and think about time from a bit more of an abstract perspective, things become a little bit more complicated. You see, ever since Einstein put forward his special theory of relativity, scientists have agreed that time isn't the constant flow that we perceive it to be. There's no universal metronome ticking away that keeps everyone moving through time at the same rate. Time can actually speed up and slow down for different people. And what's more, there are experiments that we can run and that we have run that prove this to be the case. So the way this works is that, according to Einstein's special theory of relativity, time for you, or your personal time, will actually speed up or slow down, depending on the speed at which you're moving compared to everything else. The faster you move, the slower that time actually moves for you, whereas if you slow down, time will speed up for you. It's a bit of a mind-bender, so let's take an example. Imagine that you've got a pair of identical twins, a strapping pair of blue-eyed, blonde-haired young men. As part of your experiment, you keep one of them on Earth, and while he's staying at home, you put the other twin in a rocket that goes jetting off through space at a speed close to the speed of light. And we'll give each of the twins a digital wristwatch that doesn't just tell the time, it also tells the date. So, 
The twin who went into the rocket, he spent a bit of time exploring the universe, speeding through space. Eventually he decides enough's enough and he decides to come home. He flies his rocket back to the Earth, lands safely and goes to meet his twin again. As he steps out of his rocket, he looks down at his wristwatch and he sees that two whole years have passed. But when he sees his twin, he's shocked. While the twin from the rocket is still young, in good shape, fit and healthy, the twin on Earth is old, he's frail, his hair is grey. He looks down at his wristwatch and he sees that 50 years have gone by. At the time the first twin left the Earth, the two twins were the same age. How could they not be? They're twins. But at the point of return, one is 48 years older than the other. And the reason for this is that time moves slower the closer you come to the speed of light. Time was literally moving slower for one twin and faster for the other. And this isn't just an untested theory. Scientists have done almost exactly this kind of experiment. Back in 1971, American scientists bought a couple of clocks. They left one on Earth, and they put one on a plane to go flying around the Earth at a high speed. Now, disclaimer, we don't have aeroplanes that even come close to approaching the speed of light, so time didn't slow down for the clock in the aeroplane by very much at all. But, nevertheless, there was a difference. When the plane touched back down on Earth, they checked the two clocks, and lo and behold, the clock from the plane was just a few nanoseconds behind the clock on Earth. Time had moved slower, even if just very slightly, for the clock on the plane. So what this shows is that time isn't constant. It's not always ticking at the same rate. The rate at which time passes for any given person can change depending on the speed at which that person is moving. But what's more, if you want to speed up or slow down time, Changing the speed at which you're moving isn't actually even the only way of doing it. See, as well as proposing his special theory of relativity, Einstein also came up with a general theory of relativity. And as part of this theory, Einstein showed that in just the same way that time moves slower the faster you travel, time also moves slower the stronger the gravitational pull on yourself. So, the stronger the gravity, the slower that time goes, and the weaker the gravity, the faster the time goes. Again, to look at this through a little example, if you were to hop into your rocket and fly up to a black hole, not quite close enough that it'll suck you into the void, but close enough that you're experiencing a really strong gravitational pull, a much stronger gravitational pull than you would have done on Earth, you could orbit around the black hole for just a year, come back to Earth where the gravity's a bit weaker, and see that many more years have passed for your friends and family on Earth. You'd have only aged by a year, but because everyone who stayed at home would have experienced a weaker gravitational pull on Earth, time would have moved faster for them, and they'll actually be a lot older than you by the time that you return. And actually, as, as a side note, just a little piece of trivia that I found researching for this episode that I thought was pretty cool. It turns out that these kinds of tricks of time are, are pretty important in modern-day tech. So take satellites, for example. Because they're not actually on Earth, so the gravitational pull is just that little bit weaker, you know, because they're out in the atmosphere. Time moves ever so slightly faster for satellites than it does on Earth. It's only by a really tiny amount, but it's enough to throw our calculations off. So for things like GPS to work, the scientists who built the satellites actually have to program the clocks within the satellite to move at a slightly slower rate so that they keep in sync with the clocks on Earth. Anyway... 
All of this is to say that time isn't the constant, unchanging flow that we sometimes assume it to be. We can change the speed at which time moves to different people. And for this reason, there's an obvious sense in which time travel to the future is possible. You know, think about the twin who travels in a super-fast rocket. He's actually travelled through time into the future because it took him only two years of travel to arrive back on Earth at a point 50 years in the future. See, there is a discrepancy here between his personal time and external time. And if you agree with Lewis, that's exactly what time travelling is. And in fact, at any time that we move at a particularly fast speed, you know, if you take a flight, to the extent that you're moving faster than everyone else, time is moving slower for you, even if just by a fraction of a nanosecond, and you're travelling into the future. Of course, to travel into the future in a meaningful way would involve travelling at a much faster speed than we're ever realistically going to be able to achieve. You'd have to travel at a speed close to the speed of light to travel a long way into the future. But the fact does remain that time travel into the future is possible, even if just to a very limited degree. But where the philosophy of time travel gets a bit trickier, and where the philosophers of time travel have the most to say for themselves, is when we start to think about backwards time travel. On a purely scientific level, there are big difficulties with thinking about travelling backwards through time. It's pretty doubtful that backwards time travel would actually work, and it's not clear that the laws of physics would actually allow it. See, while Einstein's theories show us how we can change the speed at which time moves forward, to actually reverse time and go backwards would require us to do some things that we know to be physically impossible, like, say, creating a time machine that has negative mass or infinite length. Those are the kind of things that Einstein's theories of relativity stipulate would be necessary for us to travel backwards through time, but obviously neither of those things make any sense at all. But if we leave aside the practical scientific difficulties surrounding backwards time travel, there are also some pretty big philosophical puzzles that arise from thinking about travelling backwards through time. And these kinds of puzzles are what philosophers of time travel like to get stuck into. So the big one, you might have heard of this already, is the grandfather paradox. If you've ever seen The Terminator, there's some pretty similar plot points in that movie. And if you haven't heard of the paradox before, this is how it works. Imagine, first of all, that some crazy old professor has just invented the world's first time machine, and you've just stumbled across the prototype tucked away in a dark corner of his laboratory, hidden underneath a white blanket. You stop and you think of all the places you've always wanted to travel back to. Maybe you've wanted to see how the pyramids were built, or maybe you'd want to travel back 2,000 years to Nazareth and see if Jesus really was the real deal. Or maybe you'd want to go back a few hundred million years and see dinosaurs up close. Well, in this thought experiment, you're not going to do any of that. Imagine instead that you have a terrible grandfather, a horrible human being, who's caused nothing but misery to your family and everyone around him. So you think, you know what, I'm going to get myself a gun and travel back in time to kill my grandfather before he can go and ruin all of our lives. And that's just what you do. You buy a gun, because you're in America of course. You jump into the time machine and travel back in time to your grandfather's hometown when he was just a little boy. You walk up to him and you shoot him dead. But what would the implications be if you really did kill your grandfather? Well, most importantly, your grandfather never would have become an adult and met your grandmother. Your grandmother would have never given birth to your parents. And ultimately, you'd never be born yourself. 
But if you were never born yourself, you'd never have stumbled across the time machine, you'd never have gone back in time, and you'd never have shot your grandfather. In fact, it would be impossible for you to have shot your grandfather because you'd never been born in the first place. But you did shoot your grandfather. This is where the paradox lies. If backwards time travel were possible, it would also be possible for you to go back in time and kill your grandfather. But we know that it would actually be impossible to kill your grandfather, because in doing so you'd ensure that you're never born, and you'd ensure that your grandfather never gets shot. But this doesn't seem to make sense. If time travel is possible, it'd be both possible and impossible to kill your grandfather. It's a paradox. So the point is that if backwards time travel could lead to these paradoxical situations, and if it could allow you to commit actions like killing your grandfather that we know to be impossible, then maybe this indicates that backwards time travel isn't possible in the first place. In 1976, Lewis wrote an article called The Paradoxes of Time Travel. That's the article where he gave the definition of time travel that I mentioned earlier. And it was in the same article that he also put forward the grandfather paradox. But he actually offers a way of thinking about the paradox that might explain how time travel could still be possible. The suggestion that Lewis gives is basically this. What if you don't kill your grandfather? If you were to fly off in your time machine with the intent to kill your grandfather, maybe something unexpected happens that stops you from killing him. Let's say you slip on a banana peel and he gets away. So you go back into your time machine, you travel back to that point again, you line up your gun, but this time there's a loud bang nearby, it startles you and you miss your shot. So you try again, but this time your gun jams. The suggestion is, maybe each time we try to do something impossible, like killing our grandfather, some typical commonplace event prevents us from doing so. So if we never do anything that we know to be impossible when we travel backwards through time, there's no paradox, and there's no reason to doubt that backwards time travel is possible. For me, though, I don't really find this a very satisfying reply. I mean, maybe on one, possibly two occasions you might fail to kill your grandfather because one of these freak occurrences stops you in your tracks. But imagine that you keep on trying. Imagine that you try a hundred times, and every time there's something that stops you from killing your grandfather. That just couldn't happen. You know, just in the same way that it's a coincidence if you turn up to work in the same outfit as your colleague. It's really weird if it happens twice. It's impossibly improbable that it just keeps on happening. And equally, the point is, it's bad luck if you fail to kill your grandfather on your first attempt. It's a real nuisance if some freak event happens twice in a row. But for something to prevent you from killing him every single time, it's just not plausible. It seems so unlikely, maybe even inexplicable, that these kinds of repeated coincidences should occur. I think it seems much more plausible to simply say that backwards time travel is impossible, because we can never be put in a position where we can kill our ten-year-old grandfather. It would be impossible. There is a debate to be had about the grandfather paradox, and despite what I say, its implications aren't clear-cut. But there's more to the philosophy of time travel than the grandfather paradox. Another topic that philosophers who study time travel like to talk about is something called causal loops. Broadly, a causal loop is when there's an event that causes another event, but the second event actually causes the first event to have happened in the first place. Again, it's a tricky concept to put into words and to think about abstractly, so let's look at it through an example. 
Imagine that it's the year 3000, and by this point, time machines are part and parcel of everyday life. You go around a friend's house, and they're sure to have a time machine or two in their living room. So you go home, you step inside your time machine, and you travel back in time. But you choose to travel somewhere quite specific. You travel back in time to the year 2100 to meet the professor who invented the first ever time machine. Your time machine arrives, whirling into the office of the startled professor. You step out of the time machine, and you explain to the professor how it works. You spend the day together before you travel back to the year 3000. But then, back in the year 2100, the professor thinks about what she's just seen. She makes detailed notes of your time machine, and a little bit later, she builds her very first time machine, a perfect replica of your own. She presents it to the world, and lo and behold, she's built the world's first time machine. As with the grandfather paradox, the way that this thought experiment works is it presents you with a scenario that would be seemingly possible if you were to travel backwards in time. There'd be nothing to stop you bringing your time machine into the professor's laboratory. But at the same time, there's something inexplicable about this scenario. The professor was only able to build the time machine because you went back in time to show her how it worked but you were only able to go back in time because the professor had invented time machines in the first place. This is exactly what we mean by a causal loop. Your time travelling causes the professor to build a time machine, but the professor building time machine is what causes you to travel backwards in time to see the professor. The two events are caused by each other. It's a causal loop. But this doesn't really seem to make sense. If the two events both caused each other, then why did either event happen in the first place? Amongst philosophers, the jury's out on whether the possibility of causal loops implies that backwards time travel must be impossible. According to Lewis, backwards time travel might still be possible, because maybe causal loops themselves are possible. He says that even if causal loops are inexplicable, insofar as we can't explain how and why they come about, you know, there is no first cause, this doesn't necessarily mean that they're impossible. The thought is that there are other inexplicable events that we take to be possible. The Big Bang is one of those. There's no consensus on how and why the Big Bang came about in the first place, and there's no consensus on why something exists rather than nothing. But we still believe that the Big Bang happened. We still believe that the universe exists. So equally, maybe we can just accept that causal loops are possible, even if we can't explain them, even if they're inexplicable. And if so, there's no reason to think that backwards time travel isn't possible. There's a lot more that we could go into regarding the philosophy of time travel. There are a lot more interesting thought experiments, some cool puzzles, and there's even a lot more to be said about the grandfather paradox and causal loops. But before finishing today, I just want to end this episode with an awesome little anecdote that I came across while researching the philosophy of time travel. So, back in 2009... Stephen Hawking, the fantastic British physicist, hosted a cocktail party. But it wasn't the kind of cocktail party you'd expect him to host. There were no scientists, no big thinkers or famous names in attendance. His cocktail party had a particularly niche target audience. It was a cocktail party for time travellers. But the genius behind the party was that he didn't send out invitations until after the event. So that way... The only people who'd know that the party was happening would be time travellers from the future. So if guests turned up, Hawking would know that backwards time travel must be possible, 
because the guests would have had to have travelled backwards through time to get there. And if nobody turned up, well, time travel must be impossible, because surely any self-respecting time traveller from the future would want to attend Stephen Hawking's cocktail party for time travellers. Well, unfortunately, nobody did turn up. But in all seriousness, this does highlight an interesting puzzle for those who believe backwards time travel to be possible. Because if it really is possible to travel backwards through time, and if we'll go on to invent time machines at some point in the future, then where is everybody? Why have we never encountered a time traveller from the future? There are a few ways you might want to answer this question. Obviously, first of all, you might simply be inclined to say that backwards time travel isn't possible, and that's why neither you nor I have ever met a time traveller. But there have also been some other suggestions as to why we might not have met time travellers, even if backwards time travel is really possible. First of all, they might have actually visited us, but for some reason we might not have been aware, or we might not have realised that they're time travellers. But even if they haven't visited us at all, this doesn't necessarily mean that backwards time travel is impossible. Maybe visiting a pastime on Earth is particularly expensive, dangerous, or difficult, or maybe it's just completely uninteresting to future time travellers. Or, maybe backwards time travel is possible, but we'll just never get round to inventing it, you know? Maybe climate change has got to such a point that we'll never reverse the damages that'll be made to our planet, and there'll be no future time travellers to come back and visit us. Or a final explanation is that maybe time machines could only take you back in time to the point at which the first time machine was invented. See, there's a thought shared amongst some scientists that Einstein's general theory of relativity seems to allow for the possibility that time can be manipulated to allow for backwards time travel, but only to allow you to go back to the point at which time machines were invented. The idea behind this is that if you were to create an extremely powerful gravitational field, maybe by using a black hole, you could actually manipulate space-time such that it bends back on itself. This would create something that's called a closed time-like curve, and in theory you could travel through the closed time-like curve back to its origin, back to the point in the past at which it was created. So here, the closed time-like curve would be the time machine, so you could only travel back to the point at which the closed time-like curve was created, which means you wouldn't be able to travel back to Stephen Hawking's cocktail party, you could only travel back to the point at which you had made the time machine. While it's technically compatible with Einstein's general theory of relativity, unfortunately in practice this probably, or rather definitely, wouldn't work. The definite consensus among scientists is that the idea of backwards time travel brings up just too many difficulties for it to even be remotely plausible. Some difficulties that we've looked at today already, like the grandfather paradox and causal loops, and even if we got past these paradoxes, there's a big difference between saying that time travel is possible in theory and building a time machine that could actually safely transport a human being back to a different point in time without pulverising them in the process. Even still, but I think it makes for interesting dinner party conversation at a very niche dinner party. And for the reasons we've looked at at the beginning of this episode, there are still good reasons to think that time travel is possible, even if just to the future. So... That just about wraps up the little series of episodes that we've done recently on sci-fi kind of topics, you know, on the likes of the Fermi Paradox, we've done the simulation hypothesis and whatnot. And in the next episode, 
we'll be moving back to something a bit more abstract and a bit more existential. The next episode will look at what I personally find to be just about the most puzzling question I've ever encountered. Why is there something rather than nothing? Until then, you can follow Searching For It on Facebook and Instagram, or I'll keep you updated on the next episode. You can also find the podcast on www.searchingforit.org, where I've posted some interesting podcasts and articles about the philosophy of time travel. And if you'd like to pledge a small contribution to help keep the show running, you can find the podcast on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.